So how was Christmas? Well, it was an absolute delight. Uh, once again, at this point uh, of the year, the podcast goes out between Christmas and New Year, and we always record it before Christmas. So I can unequivocally say I had a wonderful time. Right, let's, and let's do the other version. How, was, um, how did you cope with Christmas being cancelled? Well, I was, oh. I was absolutely livid to drive to Burnley again and discover that Burnley versus Everton on Boxing Day was called off two and a half hours before kickoff. I think that the circuit breaker they've instituted for the next two weeks is a really good idea. What do you think? Yes, it was certainly some, something that we agreed with on our last podcast when it was uh, mooted and we thought that it wouldn't work. But now that it's happening, I think it's an, an, an excellent idea. I, I thought it was slightly controversial, though, to to use one of those the, the Twitter-generated club media things where you press stop on the GIF to select the scoreline yeah, as that deciding was con- the outcome yeah. of those games. Yeah, that was that was controversial. I mean, I think that the, the way that they did it in um, in Germany where they just played the games on Football Manager, I think that was much more sensible. That, that, that maintains the sporting integrity of the competition. And, well, and, 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 and proves once and for all that if you're good at football manager, you, yeah, you could also exactly. be a, yes, a, a top flight head coach. Well, also, it, it, validates, team. it validates all of those things that, that you see every so often where they, they, you know, the Express will run a story about how the, the Premier League table has been simulated by a supercomputer. And it turns out that, that all that's happened is that the supercomputer has predicted that all the form that has happened so far will be mirrored exactly in the rest of the season. So the table looks exactly the same as it does at the moment. I think Southampton have already got more points in real life, having had games postponed than the supercomputer decided they would have at the end of the season. And then, and then, of course, you know, and this is this is all going to go out because it's important that everybody has at least one thing that's correct. Option C: I can't believe that they played all the games behind closed doors. Yeah, that's the other possibility. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, there's an option D as well. I can't believe that the Omicron just went away. I know, and it was because of the circuit breaker that they had in the Premier yeah. League that they in are fact, having currently. Yeah, it's, it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. It'd be interesting. I always like these episodes where we record in advance with with the sort of the, the sort of Damocles of a major shift in global <laughs> policy hanging over us. It's really nice to think, like we we. It's like a little gift to posterity that like the, the, these might be the last sounds from the old world. Well, when the the pandemic first hit, of course, we were slightly guilty of. Um, of being a little whimsical about it. We were quite glib. <laughs> and, uh, and people have noted that. So uh, I'm sure that this caters for exactly those, uh, those feelings as well. We don't know what's going to happen. This is a postcard from the past. And that's, that's slightly freaky. I hope you're all well. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth. How did Darth Vader know what Luke Skywalker was getting for Christmas? He could feel his presence. And Rory Smith, who has never understood that joke. Um, the, the food... I do. I know. I understand that joke. Just because I'm not a nerd doesn't mean that I don't understand that joke. You can't have your cake and eat it. You have to sit one side of the fence. If you think that Star Wars is for nerds, then you're not allowed anything adjacent to it to infiltrate your life in any way, even if it's in a Christmas cracker joke. I Rory think... Smith in read classics at Cambridge. Just because I'm not a nerd. Nothing <laughs> nerdy about classics. It's this cornerstone of civilization. What are you talking about? Oh, the, yeah, um, the cool kids hanging around on their BMXs outside the school gates don't think that's nerdy. Look, just as you've not read any Thucydides, the, um, in the original. No, the, um, I've seen one Star Wars film. I thought there were too many characters. You know that. Oh, well, and, and obviously Thucydides does not have... Thucydides. 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 No, 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 it's Mr. Cylides. His first name was Hugh. Didn't have any Coming of those Coming to problems. Netflix, Thucydides. <laughs> 
that, that might be worth doing. Um, the food is, again, we're going to make a hash of this because uh, on an annual basis, I'm pretty sure uh, that we spend this part of this show talking about the kind of Christmas food that we have enjoyed, even though we have no absolute guarantee that we will be enjoying it at this point. Um, Rory, um, what did, uh, what did you always have to have a nut roast, don't you? Yeah, so the plan is to go to Kate's parents, um, so we don't have to cook. Obviously, that is uh, COVID dependent. Um, the plan, as I'm, as far as I'm aware, is turkey, beef, and a nut roast, which I think is too many types of food. But That's I will like be eating many, all of them. Too many characters in Star Wars. Too many roasts at Christmas. Kate's mum said to us the other day, "Don't eat." We, we were talking about buying a pork pie for lunch, and on Christmas Day, we will have a pork pie for lunch. And she said, "Don't eat too much." Because you've, you've got a big Christmas dinner, and I, I, I was like genuinely, deeply baffled by the concept of not eating too much food on Christmas Day. That is literally the whole point. I quite like the idea of Rory going via M&S Food and getting pork pies in his uh, three deli items for seven pounds offer on Stephen, Christmas morning. Stephen, I don't, I don't want to play the Ilkley card, but the um, <laughs> we have a, a place called, here called Lishman's, which is it, which is kind of the, the best butcher in Yorkshire, and uh, the pork pies will not be coming from M&S. We we will be we'll, we will be buying them at Dishy Lishy's. Lish, Lishman's is the place where Rory keeps promising he's going to buy the meat for the big slap-up meal that we're all going to have at some point to his new gaff. But in fact, at Ed's Nativity just before Christmas, we won twenty pounds worth of Lishman's vouchers. So they will they will be put towards your um. It was a raffle. It wasn't like a nativity with prizes. Did wasn't you like celebrate bi- like? Wasn't like bingo nativity. It's the only reason for going to nativity because of the associated <laughs> bingo game. I'm imagining can. Rory celebrated that like Ronnie Dyler did the MLS Cup win. Oh yeah, no, I was delighted. It was all. It was. I think that it was the choice between, um, like a, a like a, like a sort of beautification package, lots of like oils and lotions and potions and things for Kate, which a really good husband would have got, or twenty pounds worth of butchers vouchers. So I went for that. And Stephen, uh, whichever whichever brother you haven't dropped, are they providing you with your Christmas lunch? No, no we we had we had a double double Christmas. We had a pre-Christmas pub dinner with yeah, the Steve, wire. Not, Steve that is not happening I'm not being funny <laughs> with the wire side of the, the, I'm, I'm remaining up we had that is had it that we that were going to have and then they locked us down and then we had uh Christmas a uh, Christmas lunch at home just just us before uh before getting together with Katie's family later on in the day well I'm sure all of Christmas. those all of those things are happening we're very grateful that they did and they were great greatly successful what about you Ferris. Uh, I will be um, journeying down to my brother's house where my uh, brother and uh, sister-in-law will be providing me with countless amounts of food. So you pass the lateral flow test? Uh, Yes, if we pass the lateral flow test. (laughs) That'll be be Christmas. Oh, sorry, positive. I can't go anyway. This is your much more successful brother. Yes, yeah. The the one that actually has a career uh, that isn't dependent on football taking place or not. Um, And the football is part two of Smrotty. We skew negative and don't even nearly feel bad about it. That is to come. You can get in touch with the podcast. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. Martin Goldstein is the latest contributor to the now regular feature called Wrong Rory, Wrong. No, I don't like this feature. In my wildest dreams, says Martin, I never thought I would be correcting the estimable Rory Smith. However, at the beginning of SPM 260, Rory is waxing effusive over his recent introduction to Lutkas. Lutkas. Okay. I must hasten to correct his pronunciation of this venerable Jewish side dish, which I have been consuming on and off for the past 70 odd years. The proper pronunciation is as if you were saying the word lot followed by k. Rory had pronounced it as lat 
Spelker. Spelt. off, but thoroughly understandable, as he is new to this potato. Feel free to pronounce potato as you like. Confection. Love the show. Keep up the great word. Martin Goldstein, New York City. So it is Lotkas. Apparently, we also mispronounced the traditional Jewish bread. C-H-A-L-L-A-H. Apparently, we pronounced that wrong a few weeks ago. Oh, did we? Yeah. You, rem- you remind me? I, I think I probably would have, would have, would have called it Challa. I, it could be Challa. Challa? It, it would be... Challa? A long A. Anyway, apparently we Hala? pronounced that wrong. So I would like to apologise for my continuing cultural insensitivity. Good, yes. Well, that, that would stretch back longer, longer than just the lockers. Um, Chris Hill has been in touch before and has returned with this. To Mal, Wash, Jane and Shepherd. Uh, which I had to Google, apparently characters in the TV series called Firefly, which is not something Ooh, I yes. have, uh, what, I, I, Steven, I have yes. seen that, and it's excellent. Okay, good. Well, the, recommended the, the, then. The show that introduced us to Christina Hendricks. I enjoyed the discussion on SPM 261 about the differences between going to a live game and watching on TV. I had the good fortune to go to the Liverpool-Aston Villa match recently, taking along my young son as I indoctrinate him into the ways of Liverpool. It has been about five years since I last managed to get to a game, and in that time, Liverpool have become a very good football team that I have enjoyed watching from afar. Returning to Anfield, with all the hustle and bustle of the ground, the build-up, the bus journey, the singing, the terrace humour, and the collective highlighted exactly what you tend to miss when watching on TV. However, the main thing I took away from it was that on TV, you cannot fully appreciate how good, fit, strong and quick some of these players are. I was left genuinely astonished by how good Virgil van Dijk was. I can't claim to have watched hundreds of live games, but the accuracy and range of his passing was like nothing I have ever seen. It was watching him pass 60-yard balls, arrow straight to feet, in pouring rain and driving wind, all whilst looking like it was the easiest thing in the world that made me finally accept that I was never even remotely close to being good enough to have played at any level of professional football. I also think the rise of fan media, I listen to a Liverpool pod, Rory occasionally appears on, helps those of us who cannot get to games in some way to experience it. They are not there to commentate, but to embody supporting the club and their anger or your euphoria or anything in between often helps capture my mood after a game and helps me feel like I am part of the footballing family, despite living hundreds of miles from the ground. Keep up the excellent work. That is from Chris. That's a really good point. Mm. I think you, you only really fully realise how good these players are when you see them up close. And I think, funnily enough... We've talked a lot about kind of whether whether fans in the ground turn on managers or teams quicker than, than fans away from the ground. And I think that's a relevant factor, that not only when you're in the ground can you see that they are trying and you can see what it means to them, but you also realise how, how good they are. You, I think this is not scientific. I think you have to be angrier to call a player useless in the ground when you're seeing what they're doing. Yeah than you do and they might hear you and they might hear you <laughs> and they're big than, than you do on tv i mean i, I mean i watched i went to leeds a lot when i was younger when they weren't very good and you would get people calling players useless and sometimes it was broadly true that at that level they weren't very good but most of the time you you watch you, you yeah you watch them and you can only marvel really at how good they are uh, the the sports that you only dip into fairly irregularly, whether it's Olympic sports or the Wimbledon, I think you marvel at the expertise on show when when you see them in those small windows of opportunity that you, you get to experience it. Whereas I think because most people have played football one way or another to a certain level, whether that was on the playground or for you know their local club growing up, is that it's harder to appreciate initially just how extraordinary 
top flight footballers are in terms mm. of their athletic capability because you have a you have some kind of understanding of playing the game yourself so you you assume that you are within the level somewhere along the line the one that that always struck me was Kyle Walker because at, at, at the old White Hart Lane the press box was really really low it was really close to the pitch there was no leg room it was very annoying um, really really close to the pitch right down basically just above the dugouts yeah and Kyle, watching Kyle Impossible Walker... Impossible to commentate from, by the way. I can imagine, yeah, really hard. But watching Kyle Walker burn down the right-hand flank when, it, on, when he was on the near side was I mean, genuinely mind-blowing to see how big and fast and good he is. It always... It, it always made, Kyle Walker gets criticised a lot for for being a little bit hot-headed or you know, not maybe, maybe being the most kind of technically proficient player in that Man City team. But Kyle Walker, as, a, as an athlete... And as a footballer, is extraordinary. It's uh, it's it's interesting. You, meant, you mentioned size and 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 how big uh, some players are, and that it, it came to mind because of Virgil Van Dijk. The first time I saw Virgil Van Dijk in the flesh, I thought this guy is quite large, and that's what you get at the at, at the grounds. And Steve, you you say that you you take when you take your kids, you try and get yeah. them as close to the pitch as possible. And I, I remember watching. Uh, my team <laughs> play when I, I must have been about I don't know fifteen or sixteen, and Michael Owen was playing for Liverpool and I remember thinking he's tiny and you do get a, a sense of the differentials in sizes much better and you get to appreciate just how small the small players are just how big the big players are and it humanizes them to the extent that perhaps yes as you said Rory you, you wouldn't be as quick to say that they're useless but it but it is it is interesting because it, it is only meeting and it's the same with all people that you watch on television more than you see in the flesh but the big players are genuinely oh my god Sylvan Dista, David James. David James's shoulders were wider than almost the length of my legs. No, but this is the thing. I, I wonder if this is because of your 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 relatively sort of diminutive height, Hugh. That, <laughs> okay. that I, I'm always I'm six foot three, and I'm literally always disappointed by how 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 untall all footballers are. Okay, so okay, thanks. Even like you'll meet like towering centre halves, and you'll be like four inches taller than them, and you think, mm, God, you're not. You know, you're not what I thought you'd be. You are not only diminishing my height, but also my experience. Thank you. Five foot 11 centre halves. No, all right, maybe not. Go, maybe how not long have inches. you been watching football for? Javi Martinez. The, um, and also, the, well, you're six foot two and a half. Stop up. I'm not. Feet. I'm six foot three. The, I, I have met centre halves in the past and thought, this is really weird. I am taller than you. I should be better in the air. Yes, and then you lift up your lift up your your, your clothes, and you see one has a six pack. Just 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 to be clear, that has literally never happened in an interview. Hello, that is nice not what to I do. You. Can I show you my Can I show you my stomach muscles? Should we compare stomachs? <laughs> Shall I compare your stomach to a summer's day? Now, given uh, actually this works now. That was a segue that I didn't even plan. Given that we are in a reflective mood in these two festive pods, I think it's worth saying that our correspondence over the last year has once again proved just how incredibly articulate, erudite and thoughtful our listeners are. So for all your emails at this point, can we say thank you? It astonishes us on a weekly basis how much more gifted at writing you are than I am. Not Rory or Steve, they're actually good at it. Having said that, our final two pieces of 2021 rather highlight a gap in our talent pool. I hope the correspondents in question won't mind me saying that once again, they have proved that poetry writing among SPM listeners remains at a very low level. Here's Buffalo John Wood, the one from Huntington Beach, California. Dear John, Paul, George and Pete Best, I think you should create International Haiku Day for no other reason than you can. Obviously, with your incredible international reach and influence, because you are three quarters brilliant week in and week out. Happy Christmas, he says, and then he offers up his own haiku. 
Set piece menu is on everybody stop and listen to them now. Now, my mm. understanding of haikus, even though the uh, the five, seven, five syllable structure has very much been adhered to by John there, is that you don't really just write one sentence no, and, and divide no. it into those syllables. Believe it's meant to convey some sort of more more sort of beautiful, poignant sentiment. Than... Yes. And, and the five syllables and the seven syllables, and the five syllables should be three different clauses or sentences. Yeah. Or yeah. Phrases. Yeah. yeah. Still, John, thanks. And finally, Bryn Griffiths, who you remember has already provided us with three limericks that, to be polite, have problematic scanning. Here he is, though, back and undeterred. Dear Inky Blinky Pinky and Clyde, he says he Googled foursomes on his work computer, which is, which is more careful. And uh, it turns out that's from Pac-Man, apparently. Uh, massive apologies for the delay. He thinks we were waiting for this one. Funny side story. When my last lyrical delight was read out on the show, my neighbour stopped me and told me how he was amazed to hear my wonderful limerick read out on one of, if not his number one favourite podcast, and how cool that was to know a borderline buffalo in real life. Reaching. To which my wife said... <laughs> <laughs> to which my wife says, says Ben Bryn, how do you have the time to do that? I do everything and you have time to write poems in a tone that suggested a perception, albeit fair, and I'm one of the good ones, that the division of labour in our household is not aligned 50-50. That bears some continuing resentment. So if you come across me in the street with my wife, don't out me, please. This is our little secret. Perhaps just say something like, have you seen any buffalo recently? And I'll wink knowingly and nod my approval. So without further ado... Here comes his latest, and I really hope not final, limerick. There was, a, <laughs> there was once a kit man from John O'Groats, ropey starts, <laughs> who was obsessive with his meticulous packing notes. But one trip he found a rogue bag in the lobby. He cried out, it's heavier than a dead body, only to discover it brimming with Ralph Hasenhüttl's waistcoats. Much love for the holidays from Bryn Griffiths. Bryn, do you understand how limerick? <laughs> yeah, I, I think he's kind of in the ballpark, but I'm not, I'm not convinced. Yeah, I think that that like the workshopping process is not complete. I'm just so glad that Scroats didn't follow John O'Groats. I was thinking Stoats. I was thought it was going to go. You know, the only natural rhyme for Groats is Stoats, but I don't know how that would fit into the broader story. I was really worried that the kit man from Johnny Groats was somebody that, uh, a bit like uh, the Everton doctor, liked sharing with the rest of the team. And that's where that was going. <laughs> uh, please refer to uh, previous soccer stories, courtesy of Mr. Andy Hinchliffe. Correspondence and indeed poetry of any kind or indeed any level, but preferably a slightly Better. higher level, yeah. uh, to setpiecebenio at gmail.com. So for our final pod of 2021, we return for part two of Sprimrotti. This is Setpiece Menu's review of the year, based in no way on Rory's most disliked annual televisual spectacular. I need to clarify this. I don't dislike Sports Personality of the Year. It's it's a nice show. It's a proud tradition. I went once. They invited me. It was very nice. I, I made friends with Joe Curry from from BBC Football, who's who's lovely. I had a lovely evening. I had a chat with Gareth Southgate. What's more, you know, there's not there's nothing to complain about. What I dislike is the way that all sporting events throughout the year are dressed up as qualifiers for Sports Personality of the Year. To the extent that when Lewis Hamilton missed out on the F1 World Championship, I don't know if you know, but I'm a massive F1 fan. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, there was a story of there was a story the next day or the day after of Hamilton suffers Sports Personality of the Year blow after you know Abu Dhabi Grand Prix or whatever. And you think, well, that 
the purpose of Lewis Hamilton's year is to win the F1 championship. It is not to be nominated for the Sports Personality of the Year. They're Although just moving the is... story on, Rory. That's what <laughs> journalists do. It is a qualifier. At, le- at the very least, it is a qualifier for it. So the fact that he didn't win the World Championship should surely therefore mean that there is really no chance of it being on that list. But do anyway, you both, get, do you both been... get invited to Sports Personality of the Year? I have never been invited. That's to outrageous. I, I have been invited once and worked there once. Right. The first time I, I was invited, I couldn't go. Yeah, I've been. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm glad to know you've been, Rory, because I've, I, on and off, I've been employed by the BBC for the last twenty years now, and I've never been invited to Spotty. You want to get yourself on the radio with Chris Sutton? <laughs> because he gets a plus one. Um, that, so yeah, okay. Clarification noted, but not. Yeah, uh, fine. All right. Not, not, not necessarily taken on board. In fact, probably ignored. Uh, last week, apart from remarking on COVID's remarkable ability to mission creep, uh, we were very nice about people and things and stuff. So now that all the excitement that accompanies the pre-Christmas build-up has gone, and we're all hungover and flatulence with expectations for a new PlayStation clearly unmet, we're going to be a bit more bar humbug about it all. Yes, it's part two of Smrotty. Or Spmrotten, if you didn't think that the first part was um, enough of a stretch. Um, so uh, this is this is going to be much easier. We haven't got that much time, frankly, which is going to be something that pleases most people who think that we talk about things in a negative way most of the time. So who wants to start with something that annoyed them? And will it be the final of Euro 2020 and 2021? I think that's kind of separate. My, my general theme for this episode is that this is the year... This will go be looked back on as the year that football that one era ended and a new slightly worse one started and that's everything from the Newcastle takeover to Messi signing for PSG to um the kind of sense to the Super League um the ongoing Super League Real Madrid Juve and Barca pushing for it Barca's financial troubles this this sense that that the game has has been kind of skirting the edge of something for a long time and has now finally kind of taken the plunge that it is now determined largely by money that the schism between the haves and the have-nots has become far too great to ever be 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 broached that that the self-interest of the various different parties within it the various different stakeholders is is kind of naked on display for all to see it it has been a very largely quite a dispiriting year in football the the shame of of Wembley is 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 not is not related to that. It's probably not. Unre- if I was clever, I bet I could link it. Let me see. Let's see over the next half an hour whether whether I can link those two totally unrelated things. This that is was like a really slow moving countdown clock to see whether you get there. Will Rory's brain work quickly enough? Probably not. That's interesting because I think if if we had had this conversation in previous years, we were talking about the competitive imbalance on its own or affected by the finances that that clearly create that imbalance or at least underpin it so now now we're talking about the next stage on from that where there is a bit of an ugliness in addition to the fact that you have good teams with money who might dominate and make too many other teams irrelevant and that's and that and that is the thing that that we're trying to trying to suggest has happened in this last calendar year. Is it, is it, the, is it the fact, and, and it, does this go some way to, to trying to tie it all together, is that however much football can bring us joy, and we spoke last week about certain individual aspects that contributed to that, that there is the ugly sides of society at large just won't stop attaching itself to football, and we seemingly cannot prevent it from happening. 
that's that's a very good way of joining the two things together they're two different two different elements of um of society's ugly aside one is obviously the, the kind of the football's use is like an outpouring of anger and an outlet for for rage and what's like wildness that we mm. saw at Wembley and the other is the kind of is the slow relentless march of 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 money deciding everything that that leads to Barcelona basically going bust and Messi being forced to play for PSG even though he doesn't really want to and and Newcastle buying not only Newcastle Newcastle being bought by Saudi Arabia but but that the fact that this deeply problematic state was buying a very proud institution was celebrated that was i think what was most depressing about that um that they are that 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 they are both examples of how football is used how how the sport that does bring us joy is is hijacked by yeah. other forces that's probably that is probably the connection yeah that even even in in the case of newcastle that even genuine long running long suffer, suffering football fans couldn't prevent themselves by being consumed by the ugliness that they couldn't be a, that they couldn't it couldn't be a jubilant moment in the the, the hope of having got rid of a, a despised owner that the hope for a, a new beginning couldn't have manifested itself in a much more savory way that instead it was the ugly side that seemed to prevail in that that situation just as when England reach a major tournament final it couldn't it couldn't be at the sense of celebration that it deserved to be instead it was hijacked by those who seem to sort of attach themselves to football even though football itself is is not their primary concern but I wonder too whether it's to an extent it's you, you give yourself away don't you so that what happened at Wembley was a little sort of glimpse of an of the the of the nature of at least part of British society yeah. or English society, in, maybe in that case, that that, that exists, it, that culture exists in England, and it and it it has become attached. You know, it, it's been it's been attached to the national team for a little while. The difference is that normally it is attached to the national team abroad, and therefore we we can blame it on kind of some sort of weird hooligan element, but it's not really a hooligan element. But then it's, the numbers are necessarily reduced as well. They are yeah, there's, because there's, of the people that there's are fewer people. There. And I mean, they're not always, they're not always well policed in the way that the various police forces across Europe deal with football fans is not ideal, but you can, you can find reasons to explain it other than this exists within us. Mm. And, you know, that might be that, you know, the policing is too brutal or that you have this sort of concentration of of young, largely young men in their teen, late teens and early twenties who are abroad, not not for the first time, but you know they're not kind of they're not taking in the museums, they're not getting into Barcelona and thinking, oh, I know, I know a great little tapas place. They are. Let's find out more it, about this Gaudi fella. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've heard there's a fantastic semi-completed cathedral, although they've finished it now, haven't they? Um, the you know there's there's it, it's it's that kind of yeah stag do mentality that that you can blame when it's football fans on either something to do with United States intrinsic to football or that it's to do with the people, the, the very specific subset of people who've gone away with England or, or a subset of the subset of people who go, go away with England, or you can say it's to do with the way, the, the way police, that it's been too aggressive, blah, blah, blah. I think what, what happened in July was that we saw that it's not like a minority of people. That's basically what football does to this country. And the reason that football does it to this country is because football is the is the thing upon which people allow themselves to release that side of their, that, that, that side of themselves. I'm not, I'm not expressing this very well, but that's the people allow themselves to be like that around football. 
but they are like that in general. It's it was one huge stag do. It was. It's like it's like the customer facing element, isn't it? Because if if you behave like that, generally speaking, you will do it either in private or you will do it in a place which is not monitored and certainly doesn't have media attention. But if you then replicate that in the crucible that football provides you, you are going to be doing it in the glare of everybody else. So therefore it is magnified literally because more eyes are on it, but it's also magnified as to its significance and what it means and the role that it plays in what turned out to be an important event that was undermined hugely by a group of people who displayed that behavior in that context. But then you, and then to link that to the, to the, like the Newcastle thing, it was that sense of ultimately what mattered to Newcastle fans wasn't everything else was secondary to the fact that, that they now had money. That that sort of sense of we can now, we can now be rich, we can be successful. It's not quite worked out like that quite as quite as easily. But that everything else to to a substantial proportion of Newcastle fans, nothing else mattered because all that matters is in football all that matters is winning and the opportunity to kind of crow and gloat and celebrate and be rapturous that there is no there are no boundaries there's no there's you're not no one is allowed to put a limit on your joy regardless of the circumstances so with England it was England are in the major fight in a major final that is an excuse to do whatever we like there was there, I was in London that day, and there was a sense of like lawlessness almost that 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 the usual rules didn't apply at all, and that I mean it was, that was not helped by the fact the police decided not to bother, but there was a real sense of it, you know nothing nothing can stop us. We can do what we want. This is this is this is now wild, and obviously the situation with the pandemic contributed to contributed to that. And I think with Newcastle, it was. It was a more conceptual thing because the celebrations were, were really good natured. There was no there was no kind of violence or anything like that, obviously. But it was a sense of you do not have a right to poop our party, effectively. We what we deserve this. We 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 need this, we warrant this, we deserve it, we merit it. And any attempt to say, hang on, what about this? was seen immediately as bias and an agenda and party pooping. And I think with with football People, it, it is so central to people's lives, or it's not even that, but it's such a useful way, such a useful, useful vent for people's emotions that there isn't, that there is a kind of a, a real libertarian streak in fans. You can't make us do what you can't make us do anything. You, you we have, we, we have the right to do whatever we want to do and to think whatever we want to think. And you can't say, you can't say that we are wrong. And under, underpinning that to a certain extent is the fact that some of them might have criticized Manchester City or Chelsea for the, for the, the sources of their wealth or PSG. Uh, in addition to that, and, and, and there will be those who are criticising Newcastle now who support a club that this may well happen to in the future and they will be behaving in the same way that Newcastle fans, or a majority or some New, Newcastle fans have. And, and that's the inherent problem is that it's very easy to say, I don't like this when you are not emotionally involved with the team that it is happening to. But as soon as you have to make that either moral decision or just immoral decision about whether supporting your club uh, supporting a club who that happens to is something that you will do regardless of the circumstances of their investment. That's that's the problem. That it's 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 almost like well, fine. I I understand why Newcastle fans are call, calling out people for for criticising them because it may well be that those people have had very different views about their club in the past or may do in the future. So why not? And that there's no echo chamber that people aren't willing to momentarily step outside of when Rory and Tariq and and one or two others were tweeting 
um, recently about the the NFT bro dudes looking to take over uh, Bradford City. I noticed a lot of the responses to your suggestion that that wouldn't be a good thing, Rory, were people saying, oh, so, but it's okay for Saudi Arabia to take over Newcastle yeah. United, is it? You're like, almost nobody has said that. How flipping blinkered can you be? And yet, the, and it's almost as if there is no cause that a certain group of people won't get behind without any awareness of any other viewpoint whatsoever. To be fair, I think people might be in for a bit of a shock as if there's if there's one group of people who are who are even more blinkered and more furious at criticism than football fans and the Saudi bot army. It's people who are really into NFTs <laughs> and cryptocurrency. Yeah, they are. They they that's like a full on religion. Um, so I'm sure that criticizing them isn't isn't necessarily a, a way to make friends with those people. Th- that that blinkeredness has now reached kind of a ridiculous level because you I mean you can't accuse journalists of bias against Bradford City there's no there's no bias against yeah. Bradford I don't think anyone understands NFTs well enough to be biased against them and th- but yeah I noticed those tweets as well saying you know but it's fine for for countries autocratic countries to to own teams just not people who, who want to do whatever is what whatever it is that those people want to do with NFTs I presume what happens is that if they're not if you're a kind of ardent Bradford City fan, you maybe don't notice the slew of criticism that was aimed at Newcastle for being owned by Saudi Arabia or before them, Man City, for being owned by Abu Dhabi or PSG by Qatar. I do wonder whether the Newcastle thing is a bit of a watershed, that there was such an outcry over that, that the criticism of it was so widespread, that what the Saudis want to do is so obvious that it felt like... I do think there is a difference between what happened with Newcastle and what happened with City 12, 13 years ago, where... You know, City were bought out by a much smaller country. Their kind of their their aims in in sports washing weren't as immediately apparent. It didn't seem that different to what Roman Abramovich had done at Chelsea. It was dressed up as Sheikh Mansour rather than the, the nation state of Abu Dhabi to an extent, because it's the PIF at Newcastle. Because it's obvious that it's connected to the country. I think it felt like a much more egregious example of that of that. And also, we're kind of we're, we're you know we're more than a decade in. We know what the Hmm. We know the playbook now. We know what they're trying to do. We know that's, what, that's why, why this is happening. And Saudi Arabia have tried to do it in other sports or have successfully, yeah. depending we on know, what your point of view is, in other sports. We know we know what this means and in a way that we probably didn't when Abu Dhabi took over at Man City. And also, ultimately, fundamentally, Saudi's a much bigger country. And I think to an extent that the, there, there is a hardcore of Man City fans who, who will not tolerate any criticism whatsoever of of the club being owned by a country who who do not seem to have any qualms about the club being owned by a country. I think the difference with Newcastle is that it was the glee with which they some some of the fans greeted that criticism was really was really depressing and really kind of you you can make a moral choice not to be bothered by the fact that Saudi Arabia owns your fo- your football club and that's that's not illegitimate it's a step beyond that adding the saudi flag to your twitter profile yeah. and taking dressing up as a yeah appropriating in, in a di- middle eastern uh, yeah dress yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. that's different that's that's not the same as as making a moral choice that you are okay with this celebrating it is a step further but it's taking, also it's yeah. it's it's preemptive to the criticism that you know you're going to get exactly yeah and yeah. it's it's yeah. a defensive mechanism it's not necessarily one that 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 supports um in of itself, what has happened, it is an attempt to make sure that you get ahead of the criticism that you know is happening instead of instead of just 
listening to the to the objections that other people might have about it and considering it and then maybe coming to the same conclusion after those objections you get ahead of it and you preemptively decide that i will reject anything and so instead of just listening to that i will double down and i will decide that this is the best way of representing myself talking of doubling down and refusing to remove the blinkers the increasing frustration of football this year relates to VAR but it doesn't actually relate to VAR that's just the continued subject of blame that we really need to get handle on the fact that it is the laws and the officials who are determining those moments in games which seem to be frustrating supporters and driving days worth of conversation about whether or not it was a penalty, whether or not it was handball, should it have been a red card. At some point, there needs to be a moment of enlightenment (laughs) that what is actually responsible for our frustrations, it is not the technology, it is that the rules are not fit for purpose or are being misinterpreted, or that perhaps we have a situation now where because of the scrutiny, the officials require such clarity as to what is or isn't going to determine their decision that all sense of common sense has now been completely and utterly abandoned. But until people accept that, embrace that and stop blaming the cameras rather than the people viewing the footage, this is we are going to continue circling the drain. Can I take that a step further? I think... The other thing we've seen, particularly recently, but over the course of the last 18 months, maybe, is we need to think about what penalties are. Yeah. Does I th- th- There are now more penalties than there used to be by, by a fairly substantial margin. And that's fine. You've, it got may the well data, be... you've got the data to back this up as well, I do. You? And so... I, have, I have found that data and I have now used it in several different contexts, Steve, <laughs> because I like to ram home a point. But just, just so the conspiracy theorists understand, that this, 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 def- this, this data is hard and fast. Hard of 120, 120, 124 penalties last season. In, up until about 2003, there were about 60, 65 a season. There are twice as many penalties now as there, as there used to be. And I think it will keep going up. Yeah. And that is partly just a VAR... It's partly just of diving. It's partly just the way they've changed the rules and they've, they've kind of... The problem that the referees have is that their solution to everything is to is to litigate it effectively. They don't... That referees want there to be hard and fast rules that they can objectively apply yeah. to a lot of situations where there is no objective truth. And that's, that's understandable and it, they deserve some sympathy for that, but, but it doesn't work. And I just... Uh, the weekend... A, few, a little while ago, where there were where Liverpool, Man City, and Man United all won one nil with with yeah. vaguely contentious penalty decisions. Ve- penalty decisions of varying contentiousness made me think that maybe we need to have a little think about what constitutes a penalty. The rules as they are now do not have to be the same forever. You can make a case. Someone else suggested it to me. It's not my idea that we could get rid of the penalty area. Given in terms of it being a place where penalties are won, yeah, it might, it might still exist because that's where the goalkeeper is allowed to handle the ball. Yeah, um, that you know that it would be the handling area, or that sounds a bit different. Um, <laughs> the the that sounds like a different another thing. Yes, 
for, for baggage, for baggage. For baggage. But you you could you could change it so that penalties are awarded for the denial of goal-scoring goal opportunities anywhere yeah. in the final 30 yards. Yeah. You know, if you bring or, a player down. Or, or, or denial of goal-scoring opportunities within that box. So, for example, yeah. Antonio Rudiger heading away from... A central defender heading away from goal out of the penalty area has been fouled, yes, but it is not a penalty. Exactly. And I think that's the sort of conversation that football should be having, like we, we, we that we don't have nearly yeah. often enough. That that would be my other... If you look at the last, certainly in the Premier League, I don't, I don't know whether the pattern holds across Europe, but certainly in the Premier League, there are now way more penalties than there used to be. Penalties in the same way as handball has come to. Handball yeah. is, is a relatively minor rule in football. It's a broad principle. You don't pick it up and run with it. Yeah. We, we have become obsessed with handballs. And I think in the same way, penalties now have an outsized influence on the outcome of games. You shouldn't see that many penalties. They're, 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 there's, no, there's no such thing as a right number of penalties. But the one on Rudiger that Klich gave away, yeah. that, that, that punishment does not fit that crime no. at and all. Just, just out of interest, you, you, you mentioned that, there, you know, that six, 60 odd was the kind of mark um, that, that you referenced. If you were to re-referee those games or watch them back and, and apply VAR to them, do you think within those games there would have been about 124? So so basically what we're saying is that there are 124 incidents worthy of a penalty over the course of a season. And what we've done now, it's just, you know, that the crime is being reported instead of it, going it, unreported. It's difficult to say because... It depends on the, the the standards of what is a foul at the time. Yeah. So because I'm if, sure that if you if you looked at those games, there were probably about 400 penalties. Right. So what what I mean is is that if if that was potentially the case that there there were 60 occasions which would have been given penalties given as penalties if there had been either yeah. uh, VAR or a referee objectively looking at it and deciding that it was a penalty or indeed subjectively that that actually then the problem is that yes there are too many incidents within the rules that we are yeah. punished with a penalty as opposed to it being some element of refereeing officiousness look there's two things we we've we failed to take advantage of of technology to as Rory has mentioned, re refine the rules to start thinking, well, what, what makes more sense now going forward? Now that we are in a new era, new era of having technology to, to help us reach the right decisions. The other side of it is this, the, the clear and obvious thing which people bang on about whether or not it was a clear and obvious mistake. The problem is, is that referees are looking for something within the law to overturn or ratify decisions rather than common sense applying common sense to clear and obvious the james madison penalty uh, leicester against newcastle recently within law you can't find a reason to overturn that decision but everybody watching it from a point of view of common sense is saying no that is clearly and obviously not a penalty and that decision should not stand and we need to find a happy medium at the very least to stop this conversation that we are having right now, by the way, we're part of the problem, not part of the solution from completely overwhelming our football discourse. Well, you'll be pleased to know that uh, as much as at this time of year, we, you know, we bang out the hits on radio stations all around the world. Mariah Carey gets to go Slade, you know, Stephen, saying something oh, of that nature about VAR, VAR is is about as rewarding as hearing Andy Williams sing about it being the most wonderful time in the world. And my cockles 
are warmed if yours aren't. So we look forward to 2022 and all of the things that we've just been complaining about coming back over and over and over again. Um, but before we go, another treat. As you know, Chinch isn't with us at the moment, but we still have a third raconteur in our midst because now it's time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is where Rory Smith tells us a tale of his writing slash journalism slash broadcasting. He is a man of many trades uh, without even the suggestion of any adult behavioural libel where the details included because he is a, a family level entertainer. Uh, so I just thought this isn't really a story, but I thought I'd just give you an, an, an insight into my inbox, if that's all right. Okay. So I get, you know, a lot of emails a day, most of them from people in the office telling me to do some work. Uh, but you also, as a, as a journalist, you get kind of added to these databases that that marketing people use to contact people who are relevant to them for their campaigns. And it's absolutely fine. So I, you know, I will have a, just looking at my, what's in my inbox now, I've got a, you know, a French journalist who contacted us who wanted to, um, who wanted to pitch a story. Great. Always welcome. A uh, couple from the uh, from uh, from the people at the sports entertainment group alerted me to the fact that Perry Guardiola has um, the brother of Pep has joined the sports entertainment entertainment group, which I think is a Dutch um, mm. agents network. It is indeed. Uh, says uh, says here, according to Perre, today, December the fourteenth, which isn't today. Uh, this was a, a, a little while ago. It was on December the fourteenth. Um, <laughs> the, that's, the that's the clue. This, this email arrived on December the 14th, which is why it says today, December the 14th. Don't it confuse people? It says, according to Pere, today, December the 14th, felt like the perfect day to announce this collaboration. The number 14 is a strong symbol to both Perry and his brother Pep Guardiola, the current manager of Manchester City, as they have always felt a spe special bond with Dutch football and Johan Cruyff in particular. Great. Only current. Uh, if somebody said, my current girlfriend, you would suggest that that wasn't yeah, lasting yeah, yeah. very much longer. There's your the, line, Rory. There's your line. Where's the journalism within you? Come on. There's a there's a, you know there's an announcement about a uh, an invitation to a to a panel about Qatar and and FIFA's uh, failures to protect migrant workers. It's all you know it's you, you get a lot of different stuff coming through. Uh, something from Jane Clayton, the Wallpaper Company. Uh, Hugh and... Ferris unread. Stephen Wyeth unread. I, oh no, Stephen, I don't have unread emails in my work inbox. I'm very very efficient. Um, but and then there's one about I got one from a from a, a PR team uh, at San Diego Wave, the new team in the NWSL for I think next season. Who've released their official crest? It's a it's a very it's a very fetching. It's sort of pink with a with a picture of a wave and a, and a sunset. Really a really pretty, nicely designed thing. Do they have their um, own font? Apparently inspired by San Diego's beauty, culture, and the sheer power of the Pacific Ocean. Um, and the crest, apparently encased in a shield, is a symbol of strength for the city and team to proudly stand behind. Great. This is the stuff that you deal with. But one really caught my eye this week. I'm going to read it to you in um, in in um, in full. Uh, the messy store. It starts. The official premium lifestyle brand of soccer legend Lionel Messi has teamed up with world-renowned floral display artist Mr. Flower Fantastic <laughs> to, re to release the Handle with Care Messi 10, a soccer ball-shaped planter dropping exclusively on Monday, December the 27th. Designed to grow all things botanical, including succulents and flowering plants, each edition is handcrafted from cast marble. Contents of each planter include bilingual planting instructions in English and Spanish, signed certificates of authenticity, commemorative messy brand t-shirt, and custom wood crate housing. And it's basically a plant pot that looks like a white football that Lionel Messi, Lionel Messi has announced a partnership with, with a plant pot. And it just really struck me that partly does Messi has this reputation for not being as sort of commercial and corporate as Ronaldo. 
I'm guessing that Cristiano Ronaldo doesn't yet have his own plant pot. But he will do soon after this news. But I mean, and, and to, there'll be a lot of people who argue about which plant pot is better. <laughs> yeah. The, but it was just that it was the, the whole thing, just really struck me as being something that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And I don't know how someone went to Lionel. The two things that mystify me: how did someone go to Lionel Messi's commercial team and say, "We've got a plant pot idea that we think you need to get on board with." And who in Messi's team said, yeah, do you know what? We we need to get into the plant pot business. That The whole thing left me wryly amused and utterly baffled. And who within that has enough money to be able to secure Lionel Messi as a plant pot partner? That's my big question. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen and Rory and to you all for listening. Have a very happy and safe new year. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Just as we stop recording, a guest has arrived. Do you want to say hello? Hey, oh, Ed, wow. how you doing? I need you to say, I can't believe people listen to this. I can't believe people listen to this. <laughs> we can't believe people listen to your dad all no. the time either, Ed. No. I know, we, we have to listen to your dad. So just take us as two examples of exactly what you're saying. Hey, Ed, why don't you tell Hugh and Steve what fun activity we're going to do now? Uh, we're going to the dump. Yes. <laughs> You know you're a dad when you take your lads to the dump.